Testing, testing. Yes, so they I think always it's jumping to, up and down. Is it? Yeah. It's because it would be disaster if nothing was recorded. Wouldn't it? <laughs> Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast in which I discuss money, politics, sex and religion with remarkable octogenarians. In this episode, I'll be talking to Lady Anne Glen Connor. A maid of honour at the Queen's coronation in 1953, she was born into a life of unimaginable privilege. And yet darkness lurked just below the surface. Abused by a governess while her parents were abroad during the war, she then went on to marry Colin Tennant, a charming yet sadistic character who subjected her to endless indignities throughout their 54-year marriage. Tragedy blighted the couple's children. Their eldest son, Charlie, was a heroin addict. Their second son, Henry, was diagnosed with HIV shortly after coming out as gay. While they were both dying, a third son, Christopher, had a horrific motorbike accident and spent four months in a coma. And yet, for all her suffering, Lady Anne smiles at life. A late-life author whose candid memoirs Lady in Waiting and Whatever Next have sold to date over a million copies worldwide, she is happier now in her 92nd year than she has ever been. The experiences that I have lived through on this earth have been many things, good and bad, she says. But above all else, they've been extraordinary. I hope you enjoy listening. Ready? Yes, absolutely. We're going to start, if that's okay, with money. Right, absolutely. Because you were born outwardly into a life of great privilege. Your father was the Earl of Leicester, and you, your family seat the magnificent Hokum Hall in Norfolk. How did you view money when you were growing up? Well, we never had any, because my father was a regular soldier. And I always remember, I mean, they were always slightly worried about money. And I knew at a very early age, because I was a girl, that I wasn't going to inherit Holcomb. And so my mother was extraordinary, actually, because um, she, even when we were at school, boarding school, when we came back for the holidays, we always had jobs. And one of my jobs was to air the Leicester Codex, uh, which is uh, Leonardo's beautiful book on, uh, on water. And I used to take it out of the butler's pantry, lick my finger, and go through the pages. Bill Gates bought it in the end, and of course he doesn't realise that it's covered in my DNA. So I was brought up, and then my mother started this uh, pottery, ceramics, at Holcomb. And I was actually rather bored. Uh, I wasn't very um, artistic. My sister was, and my mother was. They did a lot of painting and um, designing. And I got more and more bored with fettling and sponging. And uh, my mother in the end said, well, Anne, look, what would you like to do? Because you don't look very happy. And I said, well, I've always loved selling because we used to have a little shop at Holcomb and sell the pottery. And so off I went in her mini minor, visiting all the um, villages and towns around the coast and staying in travelling salesmen's hotels. And I was the only woman and girl. I wasn't very old then. Um, and then I also went off to America. So I've always actually worked. I worked until I got married. And then I also worked with Colin, really, because he bought Mustique. And we spent 12 years there. Um, you know, he, there was no water, no electric light. And I used to um, work in the little school there, which was actually rather fun. And then, of course, I became lady-in-waiting to Mrs Margaret. And that, again, was like, you know, your part secretary, part friend, 
I used to go into the office, write lots of letters. So I've always done something all my life, and I've never had much money. And of course, the awful moment came when my dear husband, Colin, died and left this terrible will. He left, I and my children weren't even mentioned, our children weren't mentioned. He left everything to his valet, Kent. And I was left with very, very little money, and I thought, what am I to do? And luckily, so happened, I was having lunch uh, in Norfolk, and it was um, outside, and a charming young man who was a publisher sitting next to me, and I was sort of rabbiting on with my usual stories, and he suddenly said, um, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, of course not, I'm 87, I can't type or do anything. And so he said, no, um, that wouldn't be necessary. Um, I think you could record what you have to say and um, we will send you somebody that can write it up every day as you do it. To my incredible surprise, my book took off and is a worldwide bestseller. I've sold nearly a million copies and so I'm now earning my living properly for the first time. So that's, I just, uh, money, I've never had very much and I've always really um, enjoyed working, doing something. You've spent most of your life around people who probably are quite wealthy, or a lot of them are. How do you see the impact that money has on people's lives? Does money buy happiness? Well, no, money does not buy happiness. It it eases, it makes it, uh, I think it um, uh, makes it more pleasurable if you're having a difficult time. But I, I noticed so much in Mustique, because we were there for 12 years before we sold any land. And now when I go, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it's full of very, very rich people. But I always wonder, because you never see them. Uh, I love swimming in Mustique. I used to swim in Princess Margaret. But you never see them on the beach. I think they sit up and swim in their swimming pools. And I think they are sort of nervous about everything. Great wealth um, is, is a privilege, obviously. But it's also got its downside. It does. What would you say that that downside was if you had to try and pinpoint it? Well, I think, in a way, I, I noticed, I, not that Princess Margaret was very wealthy or rich, uh, but people behave differently around people who've got a lot of money or great wealth or big houses. I, I noticed how people behaved around her. You know, they, they sort of alter and uh, you know, they're not themselves. And I, Princess Margaret minds about that. But I think, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, for instance, I've just been to America uh, to promote my new book, uh, Whatever Next. I was taking my lovely daughter-in-law and we were travelling premium economy. We just sat in our seats. And then I suddenly saw uh, one of the stewards come waltzing down, down the aisle and he knelt in the aisle by me and said, Oh, Lady Glencona, I've read your books. Um, you know, I'm a gay person, and what you've done for the gay community is amazing, writing about your son who had AIDS. Would you like to travel first class? 
And so I said, my God, absolutely I would. And so he took us up to the front of the airplane where there were only eight seats first class in American Airlines. And we had a sort of mini room to ourselves. It was absolutely marvellous. And then he said, let me know when you're coming back, because if I have somebody um, in the crew that I know, I will let try and get you upgraded again. And... We got on the airplane, a very nice stewardess came and said, are oh, you late again, Colin? I said, yes. And she said, well, come with me and um, we will upgrade it to club. So, I mean, the, 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 I mean, that was lovely. I mean, if I was very, very rich, one of the, the first thing, actually, one thing I would really, really like is a, a really nice car and a chauffeur. Because I do find, I'm now nearly 91, getting around, parking, driving, uh, it's a nightmare, actually. So that would be my number one treat if I really you know, had enough money to do that sort of thing. And so earning the money later on in your life, how has that felt? Well, it's been... I mean, I've never enjoyed my life so much. I can't tell you. It's wonderful being 90. I've had the best time ever. And what I'm so pleased about, which I didn't think, I didn't realise when I wrote my, my book how much it would affect other people. Because I've had so many letters, um, and I spend an hour or sometimes two every day. I answer them all, uh, sometimes rather briefly, but I do get letters. I've had one or two really heart-trending ones from people whose children or relations are in a coma, because I wrote very detailed about what we did with my darling son, Christopher had this terrible accident in Melise and his gap year and he was in a coma for about five months and I then looked after him for about five years before he could really um, you know m manage up to a point on his own and uh, that's me I've had I'm a gay icon in America um, I was doing something for the Prince's Trust the other day and they said would you like to know who um, uh, sponsored you so I said yes I'd love to know well it's the gay community in Milwaukee well, I've absolutely no idea where Milwaukee was I had to go look on the map and when I came on it was Zoom I, I had to say you know, hello gentlemen thank you so much for sponsoring me I really feel very very humble um, I'm, I'm amazed I, sometimes I, I think you know Anne you're going to wake up and all oh, this is not true but luckily it is it must be very invigorating it is. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I feel a bit bossy in my latest book because I tell people um, how um, I live my life. And, uh, you know, um, I was brought up quite strictly. I remember my grandmother putting a, a, um, a broom handle down the back of my shirt to make me sit up at meals. Uh, we always had to look at people when we talked to them and walk we, we walked every day and that's what I still do and um, if I see somebody, somebody shuffling I am tactful up to a point I say oh are your feet hurting and when they say no I say well look you must walk properly stop shuffling uh, walk properly you know with your feet and then I show them how it should be done the other thing, of course, is I'm far too busy to, fee to, to think about being old. I mean, I never think about it, except when, sadly, which does, of course, happen to everybody of my age, you lose so many friends, and that, that is really sad, and all the funerals one goes to. And when I go to a funeral, I uh, say, oh, I do like that hymn, or I do like that. I come back and write it down. And my two daughters roll their eyes and say, Mum, you've got enough. Uh, I, I get, your funeral's going to take days. You'll have to cut it down. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so anyway, I think we are going to cut it down. Moving on. Right. Shall we start? Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to sex. Right. I believe. Right. <laughs> Slightly dreading this one, but still, I'll do my best. I believe your mother introduced you to the concept of sex. Yes. It was when I went to boarding school. I was 11. And she said, darling, I've got something to tell you. So I thought, well, I wonder what... And she said, you know, when she, ha- she had a dog called Biscuit, and my father, uh, and that was a, a terrier, and my father had a Labrador uh, called Willie, actually. What a funny name, but anyway, he's called Willie. And mummy said, my mother said to me, you know when um, Biscuit's on heat, that, that uh, Willie gets on top of her, and we try, we pull them apart because we sort of don't really want her to have any children. And... Um, the thing is that you know that um, before this happened, we noticed that blood is coming out of her bottom. And she said, well, the same thing will happen to you. And I was simply horrified, uh, you know, thinking um, somebody was going to jump on me. And then she said, of course, when you get married, the same thing will happen, but you'll probably be in a bed. And that was, my, that was the only thing I knew about sex. And you were a virgin when you married your husband, Colin Tennant, when you were 23? Yes, I was 23. Yes, I was, because the thing is, we all were, except for a few girls, and we knew who they were. Because there was no contraception, um, there was what I call very heavy petting went on, but no um, actual, the full thing didn't happen. And so I always remember I had a tremendous wedding at Holcombe. My father sort of treated me like a boy. We had two tents and then our friends were in the house. One tent was uh, the tenant farmers and people like that. And the other one was for all the workers on the estate and Collins, a family home in Scotland, a busload of people who worked there came down. And what was so charming, quite a lot of them had never <clears throat> seen the sea before. And of course, they, they, um, Glen is in the mi- middle of the borders and they'd never been to the sea. Anyway, um, I had three wedding cakes and the whole thing was fantastic. My parents really pushed out the boat. And then um, we were going off on our honeymoon. I must say, I did feel a bit apprehensive. And I remember a few tears in my mother before I absolutely went. And then we got in the car and flew off to Paris, where we were staying in the Hotel Lottie. We arrived very late, but I suppose it was about half past two or three in the morning. And uh, there was a very small concierge behind the desk and he took us up where we what we thought was going to be the honeymoon suite where it turned out that uh, it had single beds well Colin who'd promised me on bended knee that he'd never lose his temper once we got married had an absolute breakdown he screamed and shouted and and the concierge said, well, the only thing I can suggest is there is a mattress, a double mattress in the cellar. 
if you would help me carry it up, we could put it over the two single beds. So down they went, and I was standing in my best silk dress and high heel shoes waiting. I could hear this awful thumping coming upstairs. And everybody was woken up. They all came out of their rooms and wondered what on earth was happening. Eventually, the mattress was flung over the uh, two beds with the concierge half under it, but he managed to get out. Uh, and then Colin lay down on the mattress and went to sleep. And I thought, God, is this my honeymoon? And so I then undressed and got... Uh, and in the morning, something did happen, but it wasn't all that marvellous. And then we went off to the Louvre, where we spent the day looking around. And, um, in, and when we got back to the hotel, Colin said, I've got a treat for you um, this evening. So I thought... Well, dinner at the Ritz and dressed up and, and I said you know couldn't you tell me and he said no 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 it's a secret and in we got to the taxi and I thought it was a bit odd because I vaguely knew where the Ritz was we didn't seem to be going anywhere near it we seemed to be driving somewhere on the outskirts of Paris then she arrived at this very very seedy hotel which in fact turned out to be a brothel we were led up to this bedroom where there were two velvet wing-back chairs and on the, where Colin and I sat and on the bed was two frightfully unattractive French uh, people having sex and this ghastly sort of squelching noise and I sat back as far as I could and sort of shut my eyes I didn't dare look see what Colin was doing and uh, they, they kept on uh, the, the couple saying would you like to join in and being frightfully polite I said it's very very kind of you but no thank you and then, thank goodness, they then left the room. And I said to Colin, why on earth did you bring me here? I mean, I thought it was absolutely awful. And I think he took me there in order to see how it really should be done, I don't know, or to excite me, because it had the opposite effect. In your latest memoir, Whatever Next, you delve a bit deeper into matters that you alluded to in your first memoir, Lady in Waiting, and some of the stories about your marriage are quite horrifying to read. The reason I wrote about it, I mean, um, I'd never written a book before, Lady in Waiting, and I didn't like, you know, to put various things in. I felt embarrassed, really. And you do feel quite humiliated, funny enough. And then, because of Queen Camilla... Um, who's done so much for um, domestic abuse and abuse in war, rape in war. And I felt encouraged by her. And I then had a really good talk to the children, because I wouldn't have done it if they had said, no, Mum, we'd rather you didn't. And what was wonderful about that, they then told me various stories about what their father had done to them, quite shocking, some of them. Uh, and I told them what, you know, what had happened to me. And it was absolutely great. We all talked together. And I don't know why the mood has lightened. We suddenly ever, ever get on, not get on better, but um, we feel there isn't this elephant in the room like there was, you know. I, um, I stayed in the marriage. I went back to my mother at one point when I was expect expecting Charlie because I really couldn't cope. I mean, he was, you know, he really... Um, and he was very, very disturbed. And I went back to her and I said, I don't think I can manage Mum. And she said, look, Anne, you've married him, you're having a baby, you go straight back. And I did for 54 years. But I could only... People write to me a lot now and I try and 
advise them up to a point. But I always say I don't uh, in any way think that you should stay in a marriage that's really too difficult and awful. And I was able to really because Colin moved back to St. Lucia. So we didn't see each other all that much. If we'd been in a marriage like some people on a flat or something, no, I, I would say to people, you know, you get out, leave. It's impossible. He was, and I know it's a difficult subject, but he was violent towards you. Yes, I mean, and once he nearly killed me, uh, and uh, that was the moment that um, my mother and uh, we uh, said, and we said, you know, if you ever, ever do that again, uh, I, I will go. But, but he used to do things which, in a way, was even more, he used to spit at me a lot. He would throw things at me. And I remember uh, a moment at Glen, our house in Scotland, when I was coming, I was at the bottom in the hall, and he was throwing. Uh, the thing is, I always had to remember absolutely still if I moved it got much worse and so I was I just was still and he was throwing these pots at me when down the stairs behind me came my third son darling little Christopher he was only five four or five and he came whizzing down the stairs and he said stop it daddy how dare you be so cruel to my mummy and luckily Colin burst into laughter and thought it was wonderful and said to me, look at your shining knight, he's come to rescue. You know, so we never quite knew, knew how Colin was going to take things, you know. Um, but I, I, it was a humiliation and never knowing when these terrible rages. He was like a sort of child. He was very spoiled. His parents had divorced, I think. He had a, uh, his mother very much overindulged him. His father, when he sent a Christmas present to Colin, his secretary would sign a book saying, um, from your father, you know. And I think, I very much think that the way children are brought up, it does affect them all their lives. I mean, my life, just at the beginning of the war, my father was in the Scots Guards, and was sent to Egypt. And my mother went uh, to be with him, like wives... Uh, husbands came first always children came second and uh, they engaged this governess just before they left called Miss Bonner well Miss Bonner was a sadist and uh, we were sent my sister and I to live with an aunt and luckily she wasn't cruel to Carrie but Carrie witnessed her being I was tied up Whatever I'd done, I tried to be so good the whole time, so I dreaded. Every night she said, Anne, you've done this or you haven't done that. And she'd tie my hands behind me to the bed all night. And I still wake up sometimes, quite often actually, with my arms above my head. But uh, luckily, uh, my aunt was a Christian scientist and Miss Bonner was Roman Catholic. I don't think my aunt really knew what she was doing to me, but because she was Roman Catholic, she took me to Mass once, and this was a sackable offence in Aunt Bridget's eyes. And so um, she was asked to leave, and I remember I was so frightened of her that I pretended to be sad she was going, because I thought if I didn't, she would take me somewhere and do something horrible to me. And then, luckily, because my parents were still away, uh, we got this lovely old governess who'd looked after us friends called Billy Williams and she sort of put Carrie and I back together again I mean she was brilliant I she, she I think she knew something awful had happened uh, to me but what I did in my novel which 
funny enough, I don't think about it anymore because in my novel, I don't know if any of you have read my novel, but um, Miss Bonner comes to a really horrible end on the beach. I buried her <laughs> because during the war on the beach, which was mined, and uh, there were a lot of London buses and taxis, which they used to practice, the Air, Air Force used to practice. And at the end of the war, it was too expensive to remove them. So they were, I think the buses were slightly blown up. They'd been buried. They are sitting there on Holcomb Beach, covered in sand. And that's where Miss Bonner, my governess, ended up. And when I finished the book, I just felt quite different. It was extraordinary. You were abused by her and then by your husband. Can you... Forgive him. It's not, it's not until you can forgive that you can move forward. You have admitted to having a long affair during your marriage that was much more gentle and fulfilling. Well, I was very, very lucky. I had somebody who was my, my friend, like my friend, for 34 years, and he just made my life possible. He also, because men in my life had all been very difficult. My father was rather difficult. I was um, a terrible disappointment when I was born. My great-grandfather and grandfather, I, you know, men had always, although my grandfather did make up for it later uh, and, and was lovely to me but um and so having this wonderful friend um i, I just knew that a lot of men were, were marvelous you know they weren't all difficult and bad and he uh, i think that's what he did for me and we didn't see each other very much but the occasional occasional wonderful weekend and and generally lunch once a week you know, for 34 years i was very very lucky and you had a a gentle and fulfilling love life I did. I, I realised what love was about, really. I, I also realised what sex was about, which I'd never really known before. I had great luck in my life, as well as awful things happening to me. You've seen the place of women in society change immeasurably in your lifetime. I mean, the life... The world that your grandchildren are growing up in is completely different to the world you grew up in. How do you see being a woman in the modern world? Well, I thought it was so interesting um, having me to two coronations because the Queen's coronation, there were no, there was the Queen, but otherwise, and there was us, there were no women at all. And the, uh, King Charles's coronation, I'm so, I mean, Penny Morden carrying the sword, I thought was magnificent. Uh, and the gospel choir, lots of ladies there swaying about. Um, and there, there were uh, girls in, in the choir, young girls in the choir. I mean, women suddenly were there, taking a tremendous part. And life has changed in the most amazing way in 70 years uh, since coronation. Well, I'm 90, so in 90 years. There were certain women, I think... Uh, the Queen, becoming Queen at such a young age, did make a lot of difference, actually. Rather like, I think, Queen Victoria up to a point, you know. But, of course, there, weren't, there were ladies-in-waiting, there were women doing wonderful things, but you never heard about them very much. It would be interesting on the subject of sex to talk about motherhood, because 
to be a mother now, the way you've seen your children, your daughter's mother, is very, very different. Well, I'm full of admiration because my one of my twin daughters, May, she's married, got two daughters. I mean, she brought the girls up. She also worked because they have a business. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I just don't think I could have done it. I, I always think I didn't want earth. I did because I had a nanny, a nursery maid, a butler, uh, a housekeeper, two uh, dailies, and we had three in the garden. It, it was so different, um, and I, I don't, I don't think I could do what my daughter's done. I really don't. going to move on to religion. Did you always have a faith in God? Yes, I was brought up. Um, um, I remember I always said my prayers. I always knelt at my bed, said my prayers. My mother used to read me um, religious books for children. And my father was a stickler for being on time. And we, every morning, my great-grandfather had um, prayers in the chapel. And uh, uh, I remember being taken, there's a sort of balcony. I didn't think it'd be concentrated too heavily. I remember we used to take a lot of rubber bands and drop them down from the balcony to see if we could drop them on people. So I think my religion then was was not um, very strong, obviously. But but I've always had religion. I've always been to church. It was some more lip service, I suppose. And it wasn't until this really awful when my bo two boys were dying, Christopher um, was in a coma. I suddenly had a very serious talk with God. I suddenly th thought, and I felt so lucky that it was there, and I just had to bring it out. You had five children, but your two eldest sons, Charlie and Henry, died young. And then your son, Christopher, when they were both unwell, had a terrible bike accident. Christopher's the youngest. Yes. How, how, does, how does a faith survive that sort of loss? Well, I um, thought... I, I just felt so awful, I couldn't think. And then there was nothing else in my... I, just, I, I wanted something to help me. Um, I thought I can't um, carry on. I mean, you know, two of my sons dying and Crystal was 19 and he was so good looking and his whole life was in front of him and it was just washed out in a moment and they thought he was going to die too. And I thought, I just, I can't, I can't manage this. And then it came to me, um, I think God came to me um, and I started to pray. I said, please, God, I probably haven't been a very good Christian up to now, but will you help me now? Because I need it. And, and he did. And I found the most wonderful Christian healer called Mrs Black. And she lived in Scotland. And uh, she would come down to see Christopher in his coma uh, once a month. And she could get him to do the most extraordinary things, which 
no, nobody else could. Um, and I said to her, could I, she used to use her hands on him. And one day I said, can I feel your hands? And they were boiling hot. They, they were literally radiating heat. Anyway, one day she was in Scotland and she rang me up to find out how Christopher was. And I could hardly speak. I thought, I, I, actually, I'm going to die. I'm so tired. And she said, Anne, I think you need a bit of help. And I said, yes, I do. So she said, look, tomorrow morning, um, sit in your sitting room in a comfortable chair and just completely relax and uh, sit in your chair at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I sat there, all like doubting Thomas, you know, and relaxed completely. And the most suddenly, the most extraordinary feeling came over me. It was as if I was f being filled with sort of champagne, in a way, with energy and hope and light. Uh, it didn't last long, but um, after it sort of ebbed, I said to her, what, what's happened to me? I, something extraordinary has happened. And she said to me, oh, Anne, I'm so glad. She said, I've been praying for you so hard. And um, sometimes this does happen to people. It never happened again. But from that moment on, I was given energy and hope. And I went back to the hospital um, to be with Christopher. And that has been with me ever since. And even now, I just feel God has really rewarded me in the most extraordinary way by giving me a completely new take on life. I've now become an author. I'm earning my living. I seem to be able to help other people. And he's just given me... I've never, ha I've never been so happy in my life. Do you feel like a path has been chosen for you? Well, I do. I mean, I don't think I deserve it because looking back in so many ways, I've been so lucky compared to so many people, you know. I just feel wonderful and full of life um, and optimistic. And if you're feeling optimistic and happy, it, you can help other people. You it, Somehow, you know, and I can always tell, uh, especially with my friends, when they're down or depressed, you know, I don't know, maybe they think I'm very irritating, but, but you know, I don't think they do because I, I go and see them and we chat and we laugh, I get them to laugh. And when I leave, they often say, oh, and I do feel so much better. So that's very nice. Has suffering made you more compassionate, do you think? Yes, I, I think it probably has. I think I'm more tolerant probably, than I was. I used to be quite, um, uh, you know, intolerant. Uh, I was always rather quick, and um, I, people were slow or, or weren't getting the point. I used to feel irritated. Uh, I mean, now I don't. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just so amazed and thrilled to think that I can help other people. I mean, so many people, for different reasons, write to me and say, your books have made all the difference to my life um, because of this and that, you know. And you've shown me a, a way through what I'm going through. And I've taken your advice. Um, I say that's being an agony aunt. Does a belief in an afterlife make the idea of death less frightening 
Yeah, I often think about it. I mean, I think about death now, rarely because so many of my friends are dying, you know. I mean, luckily, uh, if you die of old age, it's a sort of more graceful way to go, you've got to die. I mean, what is awful when people die in an accident, or I had a great friend whose daughter died of an overdose. I mean, that's awful. At least I had a chance to say goodbye to my boys, which I think, you know, was great. But I... I believe, yes, I do. I mean, I don't quite believe we sit up there, uh, you know, chatting to God quite. But I think there's an energy. I think we don't altogether die. Our spirits go, I think, somewhere. I hope, anyway. And you feel much, well, it must be lovely to think of your boys as not being gone totally. No, I mean, I, um, I mean, I. Somebody said um, a friend of mine, who, who's this daughter who died uh, of an overdose. She tried. She wanted to get in touch with her, and there are people who say, and I said. Ingrid, don't. I mean, once they're dead, you don't want to be brought back. You don't you know, you want to go on. You know, uh, you're doing it because of you, not because of them. Let them go. Let their spirits go. Now, I, 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 mean, I certainly, uh, I mean, I can see Charles and Henry saying, Mum, what on earth are you doing as bringing us back like this? <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice though, talking about them and writing about them and well, keeping them with you. Yes, and do you know one lovely thing that happens is quite often when I'm talking, uh, some rather greying man comes up and said, I was at school. The other day somebody came up and said, I was at school at Eton with Henry. And um, it was a lovely, lovely talk. And he came and saw me the other day. He's also a writer. Quite often people come up, and that's wonderful because, you know, it's just as if they're still here, still there. And of course, the great thing about, um, well, one of the things, not great, when, when you die young, you always remember them as young. I mean, I can't think of them as grey-haired, balding old men. Because to me, they're always young. Do you promise you'll live to a hundred? Well, I have every intention of it. Uh, I had a wonderful birthday when I was 19. And in the end I said, well, I welcome you all in 10 years' time. I hope you'll all come back. Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. This episode was the last in the current series, but we will be returning in the next few months with more insights from remarkable octogenarians. Please make sure you hit subscribe so you can be kept in the loop. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound production and original score, and to all of you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.